Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Orbit. And today we have Megan Saxelby. How are you Hi. Doing, Megan? Good, thanks. Excellent. I met Megan at XOXO. Yeah, in September. In September. Or last and, September, yeah. Uh, she handed me this zine, which I have here. The help I'm freaking out. Uh-huh. Uh, do you want to start by kind of telling me about this guy? Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be great. Yeah, so I um, make small... I do a variety of things, but the one thing I, I do a lot of is make these tiny guides. So they're the idea behind them is that they're pocket-sized, portable um, little zines around emotional intelligence and around kind of pro-social critical thinking and how to be more kind of a, almost like something you need in the moment. <laughs> it's like uh -huh. to shortcut the whole process between like, what am I feeling and give you a chance to actually have this like tangible object because when you're feeling a lot of strong feelings, there's actually, it's really helpful to take what they call a meta moment, like a moment to pause, right? And having this tangible item actually makes that really easy because it takes away the barrier of like, oh, I have to know all these skills or, oh, I have to go to this like set of strategies or, you know, I have to have a go-to mindful breathing technique or whatever. And instead you can just be like, oh, I have this thing in my pocket. Yeah, I have a zine. How did <laughs> yeah, you get into I have a zine. I got into making them um, in response to actually the request for them came from children. So I, prior to doing what I'm doing now, was a middle school teacher for 13 years. So I taught middle and high school for the last 13 years, and I specialize in social, emotional health and wellness. So um, coaching kids around understanding what they're feeling and how it's impacting them and then kind of what they can do about it to have agency. And so when I stopped teaching, Max, my husband and I moved from Cleveland to Austin and the impetus for that move was um, for him to have a better kind of professional space in Austin and for me to have a chance to explore some of this stuff. And when I stopped teaching though, um, the kids asked for them. So when I stopped teaching, my students were all like, what are we going to do without you? And it was really sweet. And I, I didn't really understand what they were asking. And I asked a kid to clarify. And he was like, well, you were always the person that we went to that was sort of the go-between between, you know, not knowing anything or not talking about it at all and not talking to the, the therapist. And because I'd always explain to them that there's a difference between like going to therapy and emotional intelligence, that those are actually two kind of different things. And sometimes learning more about emotional intelligence is why you decide to go to therapy. Sometimes going to therapy is what helps you learn more about it. But for a lot of kids, it was just, they just wanted information in between, right? Like we do a really terrible job of explaining to young people what's actually happening in their brains. Then we hold them accountable for their behavior. Like they're already supposed to know. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah. So when I stopped teaching the kids were like, I, I want, Miss Saxelby, they all called me Sax. It always like ended up being that shorthand. So one kid said, I want Sax in my pocket. And I was like, what do you mean? And he's like, I want the things that you would tell me when I was having a hard time in my pocket. And so I kind of started playing around with like, well, what would that look like? And so I had started initially an Instagram account um, that's called Name Them to Tame Them, because that's what I always used to tell my students, was that like, wow. if you know what it is, it's easier to understand. And so um, I just started putting them on there, and then it evolved from that to me making one, to then there being like 20 of them, and then Max, my husband, was like, well, actually, you could, because I was sort of totally bewildered about the idea of like, 
what to do with them other than just like give them to teen like have you know 40 teenagers like look at this instagram account <laughs> and the funny thing was i made the so i made the zines and the idea was like what would they look like if they were a tangible product and then we were kind of just playing around with that and i was playing around with that and then when i brought them to xoxo that was actually the first time i'd ever had them like and had other people look at them who weren't me and it was such a fun experience but like they resonated with adults with like exactly the same kind of both the like joy of having this little thing but also like then people started flipping through it and they were like oh this is actually like really helpful and it was and it sort of grew from there and so yeah but the impetus for it was was teenagers was a bunch of freshmen in high school asking how they could have me in their pocket when I didn't work at the school anymore yeah how how was teaching uh, middle school for 13 years it's the greatest job I ever had. Nice. Oh my God. And routinely, it says so much about how we socially construct the idea of teaching as a profession and actually the social narrative around young people because when I tell people that I taught middle school for 13 years, their go-to response is one of two things. It's either, ugh, I could never do that. That sounds terrible. Mm -hmm. Or it's like a kind of well-meaning patronizing god well bless you bless you you know and i i always found that really upsetting because when people have that reaction my response which really tended to disarm folks was i was like so that reaction like is the problem because they're the best but the cultural narrative around them sucks right like every piece of media that they that their parents watch that you watch that i watched coaches you to believe when you get to be 11 basically your life's gonna be hell you should like lord of the flies just like kill everybody so that you can like not be humiliated and everyone just looks at them and is like oh god it was terrible for me too but you'll just get over it like what yeah and then we're like surprised like every piece of media everything is like every book premises on like it's all gonna be terrible and then they act like you know they act like they act because they're learning how to be human in this new way for the first time. And they're stupid. Like, and I say that with nothing but love in my heart, but like they're dumb because they don't know what they're doing. And the fear of humiliation is so powerful that they will do lots of things to avoid it. And then it's so funny because people are like, yeah, I don't know. They're just awful. And I'm like, yeah, because the narrative around them tells them they're supposed to be coaches them into it. And then, really attacks them when they act exactly how everyone's been telling them they should act. And I loved it. I thought they were the best group of humans of all time. They're so funny and they're so smart and they're so like, give them hard stuff. Cause I taught humanities was my like main job. And then I had a bunch of other leadership positions in schools around student life is kind of what they call it. So, you know, friendships and emotions and all that stuff. Um, well, I loved it. I think they're like the smartest group of humans out there. And if you yeah. actually just like treat them like they're human and they're these like valuable things, that like all everything changes. I mean, yeah, everyone fancy has a, that. Yeah, right. <laughs> Humanizing the experience. And imagine that people like rise to the pro-social occasion and are like, oh, I can do this. Yeah, so it was so funny. And I also um I have a bunch of learning disabilities myself that I grew up with and I was a nightmare in school, like a real nightmare, like started getting in like trouble when I was in like sixth grade. Cause it just, I was like, I'm, vulnerability is terrifying. And my teachers have been mean to me. So actually I'll just like 
be a jerk in response because it was way safer to just get kicked out of class than it was to stay there. So I was just like, well, I'll just get in trouble all the time because the in-school lady is super cool. Like she lets me read my books. She gives me candy and she leaves me alone. So like, right. why, why wouldn't I want to be in there? Like, you know what I mean? Yes. And yeah, it just, so it was so funny. I mean, I was like the kid in high school. My mom and I sounded identical on the phone. So I would learn things about Kathy, the woman who worked at the front desk. And then I would go to the bathroom and pretend to be my mom. And I'd be like, hey, Kathy. Her son's name was Matt. I still remember this. And I'd be like, how's Matt doing at Ohio State? Oh, my God, that's so great. And like make chit-chat in the bathroom. Wow. And, then I'd, and then I'd be like, well, Megan has more Donna's appointment. So she's going to come down in 15 minutes and sign herself out. And then I would hang up the phone, go back to class, get my stuff, and then leave and be like, I have an orthodontist appointment, and then just sign myself out and be like, bye. That's great and classic. So, yeah. When I became a teacher, it was just so funny, though, because then like kids would, I don't know, I just had this like, because I felt their experience so deeply, and also because I had been a bad kid, like quote unquote bad kid, right? I would just like, kids would be like acting a fool or having a hard time in my class, and I would just be like, what's going on? Like, what's happening? Like, what need isn't getting met? Like, what do you need from me? Like, what's wrong with this assignment? Do you need me to do it differently? Like, do you need, and like, all of a sudden the behavior goes away, right? Because if you just like meet the underlying need and you're like, well, no kid, because no kid wakes up in the morning and is like, I'm going to be a jerk on purpose, right? It's a maladaptive technique usually that has something to do with shame or the fear of humiliation. And if you take that away, there's like nothing for them to push against. You know what I mean? Right. They're like, so they're also primed at that age to be like, what about this? What about this? What about this? Like what happens if I push on authority? And if you just take all that stuff away and then they're like, well, I don't know. I don't know what to do. I guess I just have to be human with you and yeah. we can actually just solve the problem. <laughs> that so. approach that you have, um, like, I recognize it and like in my experience I remember there was like one teacher who had that skill mm -hmm. <laughs> and I'm like I know the way you say it it's like easy treat everyone with this like right. decency but w why is it so hard to come by I so I have a couple theories all of which are based on my own like both like 13 years of observation but also like half-baked sociological theories I think one of which is there's actually um this neurobiological phenomenon called the reminiscence bump, which is this like actual thing that happens, which is almost all humans remember things from the ages of like around like 12 to 17 uh, with more emotional intensity than almost any other point in their lives. And that's only because you have more, um, you have more like essentially like gray matter that's like hardwired for emotion at that time. And so you, it's not that the things you experience at that age are more intense, but they get encoded into your brain in a way that they kind of always hold this like social charge for you. So one thing I think is it's like really painful for adults to think back at their own adolescence. And so they just dismiss kids and they're, and they forget, they don't like take that time to remember like, oh, I also like really worried about, you know, if someone was going to respond to my text message, I think we're really quick to like dismiss what is the really intense social realities and emotional realities of young people because we either it's too painful to go back or it feels frivolous because we've moved on in our own narrative journeys and just don't see it as a big deal. 
And we forget that like they're doing this for the first time. Like the majority of things, like having complex friendships, having romantic relationships, like exploring sexuality, like they're doing this for the first time in their whole life. And that, that requires a lot of gravity. Like you need yeah. to sit with them and be like, that is super intense. Like, how are you doing? And not just be like, oh, it gets better. Or, oh yeah, that happened to me too. And then just move on. And so one of it I think is that it's complicated for people to go back when they see young people, a lot of their own stuff from that age comes back to the surface. And I think a lot of people don't even realize it. I can tell you that from talking to like working with middle school teachers for 13 years and high school teachers for 13 years, sometimes I'd be sitting in meetings and I'd be like, oh, I know what happened to you when you were 12 because of the way you yeah. reacted to this kid, right? And um, so I think that's part of it. You know, the other thing I think is it's a hard, like teaching is a hard job. It is a, it is a thankless job. It is a job that is routinely sort of socially maligned. And it's hard to, if you think about every narrative you see of teachers in like media, you know, the idea is like, you're either one of those teachers from like freedom writers, you know, or right. you're like, um, what was that one with like Cameron Diaz where she was like drunk during the school day and just like there to get a paycheck or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> she, all I remember is that Justin Timberlake was also in it. I don't remember what it's called. I'm, I'm I think intrigued. it's called bad. I think it's called bad teacher actually. Now that I think, I think okay. that's what it's called. But anyways, you know, there's no real, like, it's either like you're a hero or you're like this lazy villain. That seems to be like the only two options. And it's, a, it's so I think that's the other part of it too, is that it's a hard job that is kind of thankless. And it's, it's, it's a lot to be like, to feel like your own emotional needs aren't getting met during the day. And then you also have to make time to like extend what you're not getting to all these younger people who are like sometimes being jerks to you. <laughs> And I think, so I think that's part of it. I other think, I think it's painful for some people too, to, to see young people struggle. So they don't listen and they instead either just do like command and control classrooms or, you know, dismiss kids and say like, that doesn't matter. You just got to focus on this or just get over it or whatever, because they're actually trying to be helpful. I think it's like maladaptive stuff around like, don't spend too much time here. Cause I, as an adult know the, you know, something I struggled with at 13 doesn't impact me right now. So let me help you because it doesn't actually matter. But in the moment, it like really matters to the young people. And then when you dismiss them and then they get, they like, it erodes your relationship with them. And then three doors, you know, three days later, they're still being rude to you because they think you don't care about them. And then you're just mad because you're like, what? And it's hard. Like they can be, I think about, I tell my parents all the time, like, God, I'm surprised they still talk to me. Like my mom used to joke that she would get nauseous when she's on my bus coming home because right. she just like knew I was coming. And, you know, I tease her all the time. I'm like, good, good thing you guys still talk to me because I was terrible. Um, but yeah. I think, and I, I guess I can't, it's hard, it's funny because it does feel so natural to me. And I think it's hard for me sometimes to explain it to other people. But I think part of it's because my narrative around it is so personal and I know so deeply like what I needed when I was that age. So I just constantly replicate that. I always replicated that in the classroom because I kind of always just felt like if I take away everything for them to push against and then we're all just in this together. Mm -hmm what are they going to do? And that doesn't mean like it was perfect. I mean, I always, you know, every year that you something bubbles up or you have a problem with the kid or something goes wrong, but like 
routinely I like didn't have discipline issues in my classroom and I like and you know a lot of people would be like well, why are so-and-so is such a pain in the butt in my class and I'm like yeah, I don't know I like ask them how they're yeah. feeling <laughs> and then it evolved from sort of this general idea because then I did actually want to answer that question more so I started doing a lot of my own research around different theories around adolescent the behavioral neuroscience of adolescence and around all this other stuff and that, that's how I got connected to I work a lot with a researcher from a lot of my work I should say is rooted in uh, the work of a researcher from Harvard her name is Donna Hicks and she specializes in the idea of dignity and um, human dignity and yeah, kind of, I was seeing that on your yeah. website. Are you are you in direct contact? Or are yeah. You okay. Yeah. Nice. yeah, yeah, yeah. So it evolved from my old coworker at one of the schools I worked at in Brooklyn had read her book over the summer and I was just starting there. Um, so he had emailed me and been like, what do you think about this book? And I read it and I was like, oh. And it was like this framework <laughs> that actually gave voice to what I'd been trying to explain to people forever. And then when I found her framework, I was like, oh, this is so helpful. So then we started using dignity as the analytic lens to look at history literature and ourselves and our classroom. And it just like worked like gangbusters because it also then gave the kids this framework too and that they could start using to actually think about each other. Because um, telling kids to be nice doesn't work, right? Like if you, like it, all those are such good well-intentioned campaigns around like choose kind and like be kind and all stuff like it's so well-intentioned but it doesn't work because it just doesn't address the complexity of human behavior right like telling a kid to be nice to another kid when they've done something that that kid feels is like a violation of their sense of self that doesn't build rapport with them and doesn't actually help the kid understand what's going on. And Donna's stuff is so much more complex. And when we started using it with kids, it just took, it just was like a whole, a total game changer. That's awesome. And so, yeah. And, and so go ahead. Yeah. I think um, what I'm getting is you have so much information. It's, yes. It's great. Yes. I think it's flooded on your, uh, website on the instagram and i think you mentioned you were putting together a book yeah mm -hmm. i would love to hear about that because mm -hmm. like i want all of this info there yeah so that's the goal so this is it's been the like it's been this long journey so i leave the classroom right that happened in june and then the question was sort of what am i <laughs> what am i gonna do and like how are we gonna do this and I really feel passionately about two things. One is that like no one's doing this work for kids in the ways that kids respond to. Um, and I mean, you know, there's, and there's good reason to be concerned. Like the, you know, the suicide rate among youth is at an all time high. There's all, and there's so many things in our external world that are deeply like existentially troubling and no one's really creating space to talk to kids about how your brain works and what emotions are and how they function. So that was sort of my, and so that need as well as my deep passion for this concept of dignity and wanting more people to know about it. Those were sort of my two motivators and the tiny guides kind of happened by accident, which was kids asking me for it, but then going through the process of making them, I was like, Oh, this via like this is the delivery vehicle for complex ideas in these shorthand things because that is I think the this the power that I took away from teaching was I did all the research I did all the work but my job always required that I could break it down into these like 
30 minute chunks, right? Like I could take these complex ideas and then break them down into these short summaries for students. And so when I started doing the tiny guides, I was like, oh, I'm really good at this because I'm used to doing this. Like this is a habit that I am used to in a whole different context with a whole different purpose. And so now the book we're working on is, um, it's my friend, it's myself, and then um, my friend Melissa, who's a graphic designer and or a creative director. And she, her name is Melissa Small, and she's fantastic. And I think my tiny guides look fine. Like, I think they look good. I think I have no design spirit experience. I have right. nothing, right? Like, I think they it look- It does the thing. Right. It does the thing. They look good, right? But they're not a visual storytelling tool, right? Like I am the first to own and admit when I am out of my depth. And I knew like the little guide that you have, the little pocket one, I love. And I also didn't do the graphic design element of that one. My husband's business partner did. So she took my thing and turned it into this, I think, more visually engaging tool. So I knew that I couldn't be the one to make these, that I couldn't take the tiny guides as they existed and make them into something because I just didn't have that skill set. So my friend Melissa is a really talented graphic designer and creative director, and she wanted to partner with me. So that's what we're working on now is making, um, we still haven't really decided on a name, but the idea is these, a collection of 15 Time, like field notes basically you know the field notebooks the little ones that you can write yes. in and that's our so that's our there's two things one is that the field guide is our sort of delivery vehicle as it were like the books that are that size that also continue kind of the patterning around field guides right because the whole point of field guides is that you take them carry out in the in environment pocket. yeah you carry it in your pocket and you, it's like the point is to take it out in your environment and have this tool that you can note in or that you can learn from and um, the other piece is the idea that they'll each cover kind of like one specific facet, but in this more kind of compelling way. So, you know, you could buy, so there'll be like 15 individual field guides, but they'll be sold as like a whole collection. So you can either carry it with you, right? And keep them in your home and just like have all 15 of them. Or if like, you know, for example, that you're leaving to go to a meeting in the afternoon and self-criticism is something that you struggle with, you can take the field guide for self-compassion yeah. with you and read it like while you're on the bus or what, before you have a test or something like that. Um, yeah. So that's what we're working on yeah, right I'm now, sold. which is really fun. Yeah. Which is really fun. Cause it, it was a, again, it was a journey to be like, oh, other people like these. Like I spent my whole life around teenagers and like, I think they're the best and God I love other them. People existed. Yeah. And like really forgot other people existed. And then when I would hand them out to other adults, they were like, well, I also want this. And it just made me realize there's this huge gap of knowledge between um, you know, in, amongst folks of what is actually happening with emotions and I really like doing all the research and I really like doing all that reading and I love sharing it with people. And the whole thing was like, well, how do you do that in a way that's like user-friendly and easy? Yeah. And so one of my, um, one of my friends brought up the whole um, hashtag that folks put on posts that are too long, you know, the like TLDR. And yeah. so TLDR is actually our like our market space that we've sort of created for ourselves is like emotional intelligence that responds to the like TLDR overload. Like 
too long didn't read, right? And yes. so how do you make something that can take this complex concept and make it into something that someone can digest in a short period of time? Because I think that's another, I always hear, and again, my area of expertise is, is young people, because I always hear adults dismiss that and they really chide children for like not having an attention span or like, right. you know, kids don't focus on anything. And actually- I deal with this a lot as well. Yeah, it's, I'm sure. Yeah. And a lot of the research around the neuroscience of Gen Z, which is folks who are 27 and younger, um, is actually that their brains have developed a more complex filtering system. It's actually not that they have a shorter attention span. It's that they have like a better filtering system for like nonsense. Yep. So they're like faster. A bullshit detector. Exactly. And yeah, I didn't know if I could swear. So I was like, I, yeah. I, I didn't. Okay. <laughs> like up until now, I'd been doing the like active self-editing. So like, I don't know. <laughs> Um, before we started and you were like, do you have any questions? And I was like, no, that should have been my question. Uh, oh, <laughs> but yeah, right. Like these kids have this bullshit detector, which is, I think, and they know how to use it in a way that is like really powerful, man. Like, okay, boomer pisses off a lot of people because it exposes like a very real underlying social dynamic. Right. Yeah. And there's a reason that they weaponized it. And there's a reason that like it pissed off everybody it was supposed to piss off. And then everyone else just kind of sat back and laughed. Right. And now some of these kids have made tens of thousands of dollars, like selling merch. Like I know a student of mine in Brooklyn who's made, I think to date $30,000 that he's using for college selling okay. Boomer related merchandise. And that is the superhero that I need to know. Right. About. <laughs> right. Great. And it's really interesting. So I think that's the other reason we wanted, I like the TLDR idea because it's like reclaiming the power of too long didn't read, which isn't like kids are lazy, but, or, and people yeah, are they lazy. Want the, they want the Just information. Give me the answers. Because what I know from working with young people is that if a kid is, in, if a human is inherently interested with something, they will learn more about it of out of their own volition and self-interest than I've ever seen. Like young people today, because they know they can get the answer to every and anything, if they are interested, will exhaust themselves trying to find out every piece of information and, you know, figure out all this stuff. And if they're not interested, they're like, see ya. And yeah. I think that's going to be a really interesting I think the the way that we frame that it'll have a lot of interesting implications for like the future of education because so many schools are still it's part of the reason I left schools like I just kept banging my head against the wall trying to get other folks to shift what they were doing right and it's kind of inflexible because it's an older yeah. institution totally right there's yeah. this really famous book about uh the education system that's just called the deep structure of school and it's all that stuff right that like it's actually just social construct it's agreed mm -hmm. upon social construct which is why we perpetuate the system we have but it's also that it would really disrupt capitalism if we changed the way that school worked because everything's been built around that right the work days built around school hours like there's all this stuff that's built around school functioning this way like from three to you know from eight right. to three o'clock and it would be really disruptive to all these other markets if we didn't and so, I mean, that was part of the reason that I left too. And that's, that's kind of the hope with the tiny guides is that, and on some of the other stuff I'm working on is that their needs, schools aren't doing enough 
and not because it's, you know, I, I really truly believe it's not because of malice, right? It's like competing priorities within the school day and within right. and the education an system. Transition. Exactly. And like just perceptions, right? About it's called a different thing in all these schools. The usual term for it is social emotional learning, but it's, so it's, you know, people have too many other priorities. People all think of the way, what this is differently. And that was sort of my thing was that I really wanted to make something that wasn't a replacement for the good work that's happening in schools, but it's a supplement outside of it because over the years, and even now while I'm not teaching, you know, the number of kids who still reach out to me or want to keep in touch, not about, not from like a emotional health lens of like therapy. It's not kids reaching out to me in like crisis or, you know, who are suicidal. It's kids who are like, I'm feeling a feeling or a thing happened to me, like talk me through it. And I've gotten really good at doing that in like 15 minutes. And then they're like, cool, thanks. Bye. And I'm like, okay, bye. That's awesome. <laughs> you know, you, you like, you perform a very valuable task very quickly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. It's really, and it's been, yeah, it's been great. So now it's kind of, and now it's interesting being, because school is so structured, right? And like, I laughed recently because um, I was reading actually your um, your workbook, Sustainable Loops, nice. which I found very helpful. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but also um, that Medium article you wrote the other day about like being your own manager, which I also found really helpful because I was in a school job where like, man, you get up at 6 a.m., you work all day, you have the schedule, you, you know in August what day off you're going to have, when grades are due, you know what I mean? You have this like real structure. And so when I left teaching and started trying to do stuff on my own, I was like, what is happening? Like this whole wide world of trying to do work online and do creative work. And I was just like, I don't know what to do. And trying to get in the mode of like having a system and having a schedule and like making it work for myself has been a whole other journey of having to like flex a skill set that I've never had to flex before, man. Cause like, even though I was a nightmare, like I was in school, then I went to college and then I got to teach it. And then I went to teaching. And right. so I've literally been in school <laughs> since I was like, you know, what, three. And then all of a sudden at 36, I'm like, all right, well, I'm going to, I got to do something else. And now what does this mean? And it's interesting because I do, so I do my own independent consulting around social, emotional health and wellness for individuals and organizations. But I also work for this company called Cultures of Dignity, which right. was, yeah, which was started by um, Charlie Kuhn, or Kuhn and Rosalind Wiseman, who's the woman whose book is the basis for the movie Mean Girls. Uh, her oh, wow. Book, yeah, her book is called Queen, well, one of her many books, but her first kind of big hit was called Queen Bees and Wannabes. And Tina Fey bought the rights to that and then turned that into Mean Girls. And Rosalind, uh, though I think really appreciative of Mean Girls, is also challenged by the cultural artifact it's turned into. Because all of her work was about explaining the female, the, uh, the sociology of female adolescence and trying to help folks help young people and the movie does do that but at the same time has become this sort of yeah. crystallized artifact right like you can buy backpacks that say you can't sit with us and on wednesdays we wear pink you know right and so she started this other organization called cultures of dignity and we make social emotional programming for schools and lead like teacher development for different schools around why 
keeping uh, school culture rooted in dignity is actually the most effective lens of social emotional learning. Um, so I do consulting for them and then I do my own thing. And so it's been funny trying to navigate managing your own time when you literally never have. <laughs> yeah. It's ongoing. Yeah. And, uh, in the final bits of the interview, uh, I'm curious as to your end goal. Do you have like any end in sight or like goals for this year in your work? Yeah. The goals for this year for right now are twofold. It's to, um, get, a to finish <laughs> a to finish the finish the tiny guides the finish the book and put it out there um so the first goal is that that's kind of our first priority is to get that finished and get a market space for that and sort of try to get that published and see where that can go um and then the other stuff there really is no end in sight you know i mean it's a really interesting time to be doing work in the field of dignity um it's a really intense climate out there in terms of, you know, conflict and how folks are interacting with each other. And um, so in that lens, the work is never done. I'm just trying to find more and more avenues and opportunities to talk to folks around kind of what dignity is and diff how it's different than um, respect and actually how our under our conflation of those two terms is what's creating a lot of our current discord because the idea of dignity is that everyone has inherent worth and value right every right. human matters and they matter the same amount and respect is different it's won and lost through pro-social and anti-social choices actions or behaviors so for example you cannot respect someone but that doesn't actually mean that you've take like that you get to take away their like worth as Humanity. a human yeah, even someone you hate, right? Because the whole point, so Donna's work, she was like a high stakes conflict negotiator for years before she started taking, trying to talk about formalizing this idea. So she was like, you know, in Northern Ireland, negotiating conversations between folks who had killed each other, you know, and she was working in Rwanda and all these places. And, um, you know, the work really is helping folks understand that y the second that you decide that, um, someone is worth less than you is the the that scary window cracks open right to psych because the the psychological distance is where all evil starts right this perception that I am different than you or I am better, better. than you yeah right and that's where that window cracks open and the way I always used to explain it to kids was you know you open that window and then like trash flies in and sometimes you don't even realize it. It's just like a little bug or, you know, it's just some dust and that dust builds up and you don't realize the next thing you know, it's like you're, it's dehumanization and you're sort of evolved in this space. And the, it's, uh, so, I mean, that work is never done because it's just constantly trying to explain to kids and adults, you know, what it means to acknowledge common humanity. And that that's actually a far more complex way to think about human behavior then i just don't like that person right and all the work that's required if you start talking to people about dignity and what does it mean to use that as your analytic lens to look at human behavior the term i like to use a lot with both my students and with um kind of in my work in general is this idea of pro-social critical thinking and that we just don't do that enough and you can you can hate someone 
that's fine. Like, it's actually okay. Uh And you don't get to take away their right to live, right? You don't get to, you know, take, and it's, and it, it's a lot of work to have those conversations with folks. And, you know, truthfully, it's just trying to find more places to have those conversations and more people to take up the work of dignity and, and take it and spread it. And that work is never over. Um, so where, where can people, uh, kind of follow you and get to know more yeah. of this information? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, sorry. What did you ask? Where can you, where yeah, can you so follow? This is all stuff that like, yeah, people need to know. Um, what platforms Agreed. are you most active on? Uh, I'm usually most active on Instagram. I find Twitter to be a bit of a cesspool where you can't, and also I just don't, I, not that the people on there are, it's a cesspool. I just, it's so littered with bots and, and like, it's just, it's it's not an authentic field to me for like human interaction before. It feels like a more authentic field for like engaging with an AI and being part of someone else's like research experiment. Um, So I would say, you know, I'm on Instagram a lot. Um, that's, I guess that's probably it. I'm trying to write on Medium more. And that's part of this journey is like right. finding what finding works. that. Like what works? Where do I feel authentic? And like, where does it feel like it'll reach folks without, you know, I, I don't know. So it's funny because it's, it's, say that's a journey. I'm on Instagram yeah. a lot. The name them to tame them account and then just my personal account. But um, I would also recommend, you know, that the cultures of dignity is where the cultures of dignity, Instagram and Twitter a lot of the work that I do around dignity intersects with all the work they're doing. And I, we, I co-create a lot of the stuff um, or some of the stuff with them. So I would also say if, if it's stuff people are interested in the cultures of dignity, Instagram and Twitter are also really great resources and go read Donna's book. Great. Donna is not active on social media at all um, for reasons that I think she just is, doesn't see it as, as a dignity researcher. She's like, social media is not. Yeah. And I, I, I actively and appropriately, I think, disagree with her that it's actually the place. And that's a task that she has given to me because she's like, great, then you go do something because I have no interest um, in that space. So yeah, that's what I would say. But read her book. It'll, it'll change your mind. Perfect. And we'll keep an eye out for uh, your book when it comes out. Thanks again yeah. for uh, talking with me on The Orbit. We'll debrief, yeah, thanks so debrief much. after this okay. and resource share. But uh Thanks again for sitting down and having the time. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. All right, take it easy. Bye.